Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. How are you doing? Doing pretty good, you? Doing quite good. Can't complain. Um, wanted to get together, pick your brain today a little bit about um concept of inadequate equilibria. Yeah. So I guess to get started, you know, what's an adequate equilibria? Uh, I think, um, as it's Yudkowsky's term, uh, the inadequate equilibria, neither of those words by themselves. And in that context, uh, equilibria aren't adequate by themselves. They are adequate to some particular task. Uh, the, an adequate equilibria is one in which a low-hanging fruit to a certain level is being picked. Um, so in the stock market, uh, if you are aware the stock is underpriced, if you have information, uh, you can make money off of that in a way that corrects the stock because you can uh, buy a bunch of shares of the underpriced stock. And uh, that will cause the price to go up until it hits the... Uh, sorry, let me uh, reorient. Um, in general... Uh, Certain uh, structures have a property uh, wherein there is no free energy. I'm sorry, I'm trying to reorient. Yeah. Uh, so in the stock market, um, if you are aware the stock is underpriced, you can buy the stock, and th that will cause the price of the stock to go up, and so you can make money off of it. And so the stock market sort of resembles um, a busy sidewalk in that you wouldn't expect to see $20 bills. I feel like I'm not explaining this very well. That's right. Yeah. So let's, let's start with the um, sidewalk example. Like yeah. that's the classic econ example, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so um, let's say you're in Penn Station. There's tons of people, you know, thousands of people walking through every day. And uh, you see a $20 bill on the ground. Yeah. You think like everyone's walking past, a lot of people are looking down. Generally, people will pick up that $20 bill. Yes. Uh, and it would be really weird if it stayed there for very long. Yep. Uh, because, you know, it's kind of like public information. Everybody can see the same sidewalk. Yeah. Everybody knows it's a $20 bill. And, they, and if they pick it up, you know, yes. they, they benefit. Um, so the stock market example you're giving. So... The interesting thing about the stock market is, you know, there's a lot of public information. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of actors competing. Yeah. Um, and and so, like you said, if, if we spot and we see Microsoft, it's Microsoft stock is at $10. And we look at, like, how profitable they've been. We determine, really, the stock should be $20. We can buy Microsoft stock. 
um, and then you know correct that help correct that price right yes. um, it would be because you know there's a lot of sophisticated people in the stock market yes. trying to do this trying to make money yes uh, all the information is publicly relatively publicly available you know there's special cases but the SEC they, they really try yeah. the Securities Exchange Commission uh, really tries to make sure people don't you know make money with private information or things like that um, you know it would be difficult to make a profit or make a lot of money in the stock market yes. by correcting prices. Yes. Because um, all the profits get competed away. Yes, because somebody else would, who knows what you knew has already factored that in. That's right. Um, given the number of people involved and the fact that the incentives are aligned so that you can actually make money by correcting the prices. That's right. Um, So an adequate equilibria is a situation where it's adequate to uh, correcting the prices, to consuming a certain amount of, Yudkowsky uses the phrase free energy, which is an abstraction and one I have trouble putting into other words. Yeah. Um, but generally, uh, it's a desiderata. If there is something that a lot of people want and they are all in a position to get it, then you should expect them to have already gotten it in the same way you would. You don't see $20 bills lying down the side, lying on the sidewalk when you take right. a walk. So, so like if we're, if we're walking down the sidewalk, a lot of people are walking down the sidewalk. Everyone can bend over and pick it up, you know. Yes. We expect it will it will get picked up. It would be yes. weird if it didn't get picked up. Yes. Um, similarly, uh, at the supermarket, um, you usually can't do very much better by going to try to find a new lane. Uh, sometimes you find one that's just opening, but in general, if the lanes are open, then other people will have been looking to find the shortest lane, and so you can't... Uh, jump ahead three carts in a supermarket line by uh, looking for an hour line. So you're mentioning like, uh, so, you know, you're at the grocery store yeah. and you want to check out faster. You obviously want to get home. Like this is just, yes. every, everyone's trying to get home as fast as they can to do whatever else is higher value activity. Yep. Um, everyone can see how many people are in each lane. So yeah. it's all publicly available information. So unless you have, yeah. So, so it's difficult to do better yep. than, you know, because there are a lot of people involved and they know what you know. So you don't have any structural advantage. That's right. Um, and I remember reading a, uh argument that the returns to looking for a faster lane should always be just enough to compensate the very busiest people who have the most incentive to look for a separate lane. Gotcha. So this is just like in the stock market. Yes. There's enough incentive pay the professionals yep. more than their next best opportunity. Yes. So you end up with the stock market. You have stocks that are not um, predictably underpriced or overpriced, provided you can short sell. Um, right. Uh, with sidewalks, you have uh, no resources, no money, but you know also not rare collectible baseball cards. Right. Uh, with the supermarket example, it's time. Uh, you can't get more time by looking, except right. just squeaking out some at the margin. And an inadequate equilibria is an equilibria that fails to achieve a particular level of this. 
So Yudkowsky uses the example of a um, treatment he looked into for his wife. Uh, she has very bad seasonal affective disorder. And he did some research and thought he had come up with a new therapy that would um, help her since the existing therapies were not working. Right. And he's not a doctor. So it is um, from a certain perspective, you wouldn't expect him to be able to do that. You right. would think that... Um, all of the ideas that a uh, amateur doing research could find, doctors in the system would find, because there are a lot of doctors. Right. So, so this, I, I love this example. I really love this example. Um, and it, it was in Yudkowsky's book, Inadequate Equilibria. Um, so the example is, uh, you know, Yudkowsky's, the author's wife, um, has really bad seasonal affective disorder, which is where you get depressed because you're not exposed to enough sunlight. Um, and so he starts looking into this and, you know, one of the options was he sends her to South America, you know, fly, you know, pays to, and she flies down to South America and spends the winter there. That's really expensive. So he started thinking, you know, what else could I do? And he looks into it and, um, he looks at traditional light boxes. That's the traditional therapy is you, you know, put a lot of light and, um, and you look at it and that helps, you know, it mimics the sun. That's what you're doing. Um, getting more sunlight. But he noticed, you know, maybe this is not bright enough. And yeah. so he goes out and he gets like these, you know, super powerful LEDs and he yeah. strings up like 10 of them or something and like just, you know, incredibly bright lights all throughout the apartment, strings them up, spends about a thousand bucks. And suddenly, you know, his wife feels much better all the time. Yes. No more suicidal ideation. Like, like so a lot better, doing a lot better, which is really weird because there are physicians, researchers, MDs. PhDs um, who are selected for being the smartest, very conscientious people um, that work on, you know, sad seasonal affective disorder exclusively. You know, why was Itkowski able to beat the um, the researchers in their stated aim of, you know, making a treatment for seasonal affective disorder that worked, that actually worked? Because... This is just rephrasing the fact that he could kind of, but the system was not adequate to that level. And the reason is going to come down to misaligned incentives because you have a lot of people uh, in the area uh, who are smart. And this is not a very obscure idea um, in that, you know, if some light helps, you would expect more light to help more. Right. This, this, is, fairly, this is fairly common sense. Yes. And yet, it looks like nobody thought of it. And this tells us that no one was incentivized to think of it. Right. Um, because of the number of people involved. Uh, if you have a committee at your workplace, um, and they are incentivized to think of good ideas, maybe that uh, four or five or twelve people in the committee uh, just won't think of the ideas. Yeah. But if you have hundreds or thousands of people in the system then you can be fairly sure that they'll think of a obvious idea. And, and, and these are smart people too. Like yes. we should like, this is, I, I think that's, what's good about this example. It's not like, I mean, these are experts in this particular field that yes. dedicated a life. And they, I mean, how many years of education, you know, like, you know, four years of medical school, four years yeah. of undergrad, four years of residency, you know, except or research fellowships, whatever. Um, and it's, if, He'd had a dream where a leprechaun told him to mix together 
certain specific chemicals and he had done it and it had worked by coincidence. That would be one thing. Right. But he tried more of the thing that we know helps some. Right. Light. Uh, <laughs> right. He just turned it up. The 10 So they are smart people and they are conscientious people, but we don't even need them to be smart or conscientious. Right. Uh, so it's just very clear that... um. This system is not properly incentivizing people to uh, attain that level of um, rigor, kind of. Right. Um, because it isn't that it takes a creative leap. It's that uh, they're not looking carefully enough to find that treatment. And it's a right. pretty obvious treatment. So, so I, I want to I interject. So, Quinn, is... is, is so, is this what's going on? Is are sad researchers, you know, seasonal affective disorder researchers, all these MDs, PhDs, are they optimizing on something other than curing seasonal affective disorder? So, yes. that, like that's the stated aim. That is the stated aim, but yes. the stated aim is not exactly. Maybe they're optimizing for publications and prestigious journals. Yes. Or. Uh, something else. Yep. Institutional power, job security. Job security. Uh, there, sometimes you get evolutionary dynamics wherein the system itself selects people. Um, so Pornell's Iron Law of Bureaucracy says, I've heard uh, it phrased a couple different ways, but it says that each organization is made up of some people who pursue the stated goal of the organization and some people who try to get more power within the organization. Right. And if you wait long enough, the people who are trying to get power will end up having more power. And so the organization becomes increasingly dominated by people who are trying to do things that are not the stated aim of the organization. So it gets... so the uh, <laughs> the bad money crowds out the good or something. Yes. Um, well, it's a... I think of it like an evolutionary dynamic in that there is something selecting the people who are going to have power, their desire for power. Gotcha. And uh, so because that's being selected for, it eventually crowds out the uh, other thing, even if that other thing correlates with it. Uh, When you read AI people, they talk about um, programming in a goal that correlates with the uh, intended goal very well but not perfectly and it turns out that optimizing hard enough for the proxy decouples the proxy from the original goal um guitar style can you say that say that one more time so um if you program in so i've seen this work through with a bunch of different examples and it's hard to distill all of them down to because you keep feeling like you just have to add more details and then that keeps not working. But say uh, you think humans being happy is good. I think that's not too controversial. (laughs) Hopefully most of our listeners would agree. (laughs) We program an AI, a powerful AI, to make people happy. If it's fairly weak, it might try, I don't know, giving them compliments, uh, connecting them with potential friends or romantic partners. But once it becomes strong enough, the way to make the humans happiest is to administer them all heroin. So you, so you just run around the robot, just like uh, it's just like stabbing people, trying to it, it put in IV fentanyl yes. or something. Like this is like this is the best thing. Yeah. Well, see, 
happiness correlates with what we want, but it's not all of what we want because we don't want to be on heroin for the rest of our right, lives. Right, right, right. And it turns out that if it pursues our happiness, which is usually very good, it ends up de- the happiness is a proxy for whatever we really want. And pursuing that hard enough, optimizing hard enough on that metric decouples the proxy. Um, the tails come apart. Right. And this is significant because a market or a structure like a market, which involves a lot of smart people pursuing the proxy, will reliably uh, at least start to decouple the proxy. With sufficiently strong optimization, it will definitely decouple the proxy, but humans aren't AIs. Right. This is this is very interesting. Like it, it's uh and, and really important, and I feel like part of this is why conceptually startups can even exist at all. Yes. Like it doesn't even make sense. Like why would you know like all like like Microsoft you know yes. it makes billions and billions of dollars in profit. You know why don't they just you know anything that's software related? Why aren't they just out there making this these things happen? Yes. Well, they're uh moral maze i mean they have lots and lots of levels of mill management which means they're have lots of people optimizing for proxies that are decoupled from the things they're actually supposed to optimize for right and you know also communication difficulties coordination difficulties right uh startups are more nimble is the conventional wisdom and i think that's valid you have a handful of people who really care about a thing is this also something is there something else going on? This is this may be orthogonal and less important, but where startups, um, you know, in the beginning, founders, even small, you know, it's, and it could be more than one person. But I, I want to, you can think of them as uh, monarchies in some sense. So yes. they can like get rid of anyone that uh, is optimizing on power, not on the stated mission. Yes. And then you slowly have this degradation into oligarchy over time. Yeah. Um, where, you know, let's say the founders leave and then suddenly, you know, it's people that are optimizing on power, not on state of mission. And it just goes on direct the drain over time. Yeah. Slow entropy. You start with a benevolent dictator. Right. Uh, and you end up with an oligarchy or a bureaucracy, a right. government by bureaucrats. Right. But, um, and, you know, bureaucracy has a negative connotation and it's worth noting i think this is where that comes from i mean if bureaucracies were perfectly aligned to incentives they would get things done very efficiently right but as a general rule they're not we suck at that well they're they're perfectly aligned to the wrong incentives yes <laughs> that's they right are. like they're perfectly aligned to the wrong incentives and, and not the incentives we want them to be aligned to oh. um so i think this is a uh, this is really important because a lot of uh even like i i remember in econ 101 you know you always like the first thing you model is uh perfect competition yeah you know probably because it's like really easy to model and so we just hammer perfect competition like you know there's monopolies too and like an oligopoly and all these things in between um but you know they talk a lot about perfect competition yeah and and, and this and where all the profits are competed away but that's like this is not exactly how the and, and maybe maybe that's orthogonal too. I don't I don't know. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with that. 
Um, but but just the sense that like uh, so when we think of things that work well, like the stock market yes. works well, um, we, we think that transfers to everything. Yes. When oftentimes, very oftentimes, it doesn't. Like we, you know, the I think the seasonal affective disorder example is really powerful because you know this huge gains. Yeah. And relatively little, you know, a thousand dollars and. You know, some sitting there thinking, what if we just had more light? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very bizarre to think about. I don't know. Like, just think about why people miss things um, oh. or incentivized to miss things. And also the difference between stated goals and actual goals. Yes. And the stories we tell yourself, tell ourselves about that. Um, yes. I think are important to keep in mind. I don't know. That's a, that's a web of ideas. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Uh, it's a good web of ideas. There are a bunch of good ideas, and there are a bunch of relevant ideas in there. Um, I think part of what I was saying about the uh, iron law of bureaucracy, I was yeah. using that to introduce that sometimes it's the case that nobody in the system has made this discovery, like picking up a $20 bill. Yeah. And sometimes people may have made the discovery, but there are selection effects in place such that that doesn't uh, reach the public. It doesn't become part of the public record. Mm. So it wouldn't surprise me if some doctor somewhere had made the same discovery that Kowski did just because, right. you know, more light is pretty obvious. Right. So there is some ambiguity as to where the system didn't let anyone discover that or didn't propagate the knowledge once they had because now that Yudkowsky has, I don't think uh, the healthcare system is going to adopt it because he's not properly credentialed. Right. And that is, you know, it's worth noting. It doesn't, um, it's non-obvious that when someone discovers a medical thing that works really well and helps people, that the healthcare system doesn't adopt it. Right. Um, it's very, it's very, <laughs> it's quite worrisome. Yeah, on many levels, right? I mean, it's it's quite worrisome on on just so many levels. I I think it's probably the case, right? If you ex explicitly asked, you know, a couple of sad researchers, I don't know, it'd be really interesting to call them. Like if we called them up and said, "Hey, like, uh, what if you just like crank the light up?" And they they might yes. be like, "Yeah, that could be the thing," but I I can't get published on that axis or something, or yes. there's some something else going on which is really bizarre. My suspicion which is not enough to explain it, but I think it's probably involved, is lawsuits and risk. Mm. Because it is pretty obvious. Um, it's more of the thing that works. Right. I know I keep saying that, but... So, the fact that that discovery hasn't been put forward implies to me that there's some significant cost. Like, I have a difficult time believing that fewer than 1% of researchers working in this field would think of that. Right. Um, I like Yudkowsky. I respect Yudkowsky. He has loads of non-obvious ideas, but this yeah. is really a pretty <laughs> obvious idea. As, as they go, apparently. Yeah. It, it wouldn't take... It's almost something where if you ask, like, you know, it's it's like a kindergartner. It's like, yeah, yes. what do we do? It's kind of like, it's kind of like the pandemic. It's like, well, all these people, like, what should we do? It's like, well, maybe they should quarantine for fourteen days before they come in the country. Like, I don't know. Like, it, it's not yeah. it's not a high bar. Like, it's no. just not a high bar. It's like more light, right? Yeah, it is. Which to me suggests there's some 
they're not just unincentivized to discover it. There's some uh, punitive factor on the table. Right. And, you know, I sort of doubt that... I think if they tried it and something went wrong, they would probably not be legally liable. But if you're a doctor and you only do things you will probably not be legally liable for, you'll get one of those wrong and it will be bad for you. You wouldn't play Russian roulette with that kind of thing? No. Um, With your career? Yeah. I think one of the things underlying the pattern of stagnation is risk aversion and lawsuits. I don't have the exact relationship between the lawsuits and the risk aversion figured out. Seems a little bit like a chicken and egg thing where they cause it but they're also caused by it. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's so I don't know here's one thing. Like so when people talk about risk aversion and stagnation I do wonder like they, are people really less like more risk averse than they were in the past? Yeah, and like like at some like attitudinal level, like yes. that. That's my question. Like I like and and that's like weird to me. But then I wonder if it's like uh, it's almost like a compounding thing, and I don't know how this gets started. But maybe like you know, if the world is more static, you become more risk averse. Yeah, Be- and then like because like you know, let's say you know the consequences for taking risks are increased you have less chances you know like uh i i don't know i don't know does that make sense at all yeah it does uh partly if the world is more static then uh it's easier to feel like you don't have as much to lose and it's easier to sort of internally stagnate to get into a rut psychologically um i think Zvi Mashowitz calls it uh, asymmetric justice. And I'm sure that that's a piece of it. That's where uh, you are to blame for unforeseen bad consequences of your actions, but you are not symmetrically credited with unforeseen good consequences. And it, the result of that over time is to disincentivize all action. I, is that something where, like, you are to blame if you throw the switch in the trolley problem. You're yeah. not really to blame if you let it happen. Yeah. So more people die, but you know you didn't cause someone to die. Some of that, but also, you know, if you throw the switch in the trolley problem and you save more lives, and that's allowed to count against the people you kill, then you'll be incentivized to throw the switch anytime you're saving more people than right. would otherwise be killed. So I think some of this is. We just had some people uh, develop vaccines for the pandemic. Right. And I don't think they're going to capture a tenth of the excess value from that, what people would be willing to pay. Right. And, you know, it makes sense that uh, you're going to get people who are much more reluctant to take risks um, if they are responsible for the risks, but they only get to reap part of the gains. Right. Well, that actually be, that would be super interesting. I, I would... I don't, I don't know, like, uh, I should look this up, but I, I would be really curious to know how much the scientists who came up with the mRNA, the fir- you know, the first yeah. mRNA vaccine, you know, how much uh, that woman got paid. Yeah. And, you know, how much is it? Like, probably, I, I guarantee it wasn't 10% of the <laughs> no. net value. Uh, but if it gave everyone Guillain-Barre, you know, yeah. uh, 
some Q supporters would be hunting her down with rifles, uh, which is like <laughs> severe punishment compared to uh, the uh, the upside. Which and, and there's like just little upside. Yeah, I don't know, but I don't know how to fix like you know scientists having upside and things like that. No, oh, I think sometimes it's really hard, and other times it's a little easier. Other times people are punishing them for things they really couldn't have foreseen. And it does seem to me that it is net good for us to stop doing that if we're not going to reward them symmetrically for things that... Which doesn't... um, To the extent that it's something psychological, uh, that's not going to help. Uh, Or it's not going to fix it, but it might help because... Once you start looking for this asymmetric justice stuff, you see it just about everywhere. People are to blame for bad things that happen, and they aren't uh, symmetrically credited with good things that happen. And so if you're a sad researcher and it occurs to you that this treatment might work, you know that if you give someone skin cancer, you have a very good chance of being sued and having your insurance go up. And right. if you succeed in, if the treatment succeeds and it helps, you aren't going to get symmetric gains from that. Right. And so anyone who cares about their career will get out of the habit of either doing that sort of experiment and to some extent even looking for that sort of experiment. Right. So I think that's enabling some degree of the psychological effect because we're selecting very heavily for people who don't take unnecessary risks. Right. But I also think there might be a thing where, um, you know, humans use role models. So if all of the people who succeed in the field don't take unnecessary (laughs) risks, where unnecessary risks are unnecessary to them, but sometimes very, very good for people as a whole. Yeah. Then, you know, a lot of people are going to internalize that that's how you do the job. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that actually reminds me of even in the case of this, like, this is a very light example of this, but I think it's, it's quite illustrative. Um, do you remember it was a couple of years ago? There is an econ blogger who couldn't get tenure because, or like, really had trouble getting placed in in an academic job because they had a blog Uh, yeah scott wrote about that yeah um i I just i just wonder about that you know and that's not even (laughs) yes writing a blog right you know it's like that norm that tiny norm yes you know violation is like enough to oh not even necessarily it's interesting looking at the pattern of norms i mean um because I'm not sure that it always would have been a norm violation. Or uh, I'm thinking more of decades past, and, you know, decades past you couldn't do a block. Right. But I think the there's an asymmetric incentive in terms of um, mobs, crowds. Uh, a mob can take things from a minority. Uh I'm thinking of, you know, the nightmarish pogroms and stuff, but also much more mundane stuff. But a mob can't profit by coming together to bestow gifts. So you have hate mobs, but not love mobs. Right. Um, 
And so in a certain kind of environment where um, you're not going to be rewarded for being singled out, but you have a strong incentive to be illegible and invisible. Um, Benjamin Hoffman has a, as I called, scapegoat games where he's talking about how in our current society being singled out is presumptively bad most of the time. Yeah. And so having a blog makes you stand out. Right. So, um, and if I cross that with Zvi Mashowitz, which I think he would be okay with because they're friends. Uh, yeah. Mashowitz thinks that to a large extent, people are habituated to the, the moral mazes, um, to a system in which standing out is bad to the point that um, writing a blog is bad because it signals that you're the kind of person who would write a blog, which <laughs> right. means that you're not being prudent. And Right, right. And I do see this, you know, mentality in some places. Yeah. So to some extent, it's a norm violation because it's not smart and it's not smart or not prudent, not appropriate, not, and it's not prudent because getting singled out is bad rather than good. Right. And people have adapted to that system. Yeah. I, I still, I'm like, I still, there's still something missing in my yeah. mind about how, and this is kind of, a, it's not entirely related, but I think it is related yeah. in an important way. It, it's still unclear to me why um, it feels like in the past we were more okay with people having different ideas yes. than we are now. In, in the sense like... Uh, and we've talked about this before. I, you and I, I think, explicitly have talked about this before. You know, um, Peter Thiel talks about you know most of these the, the founders of the big tech companies having um, some mild form of Asperger's or something, yes. like, where they just kind of can, in some sense, ignore you know like the social pressures to a certain extent. But like, I, I'm not clear why. Like, I, I don't feel like it just changes because like people decide like we're going to start beating down you know any any nail that sticks up like yes. I, that so do you have any thought on on why like how like i don't know and, and why is always overdetermined so like. yeah well i'm in one of those places where i know that the model that we've worked out so far is incomplete because it's changing and i don't really know why it's changing yeah i can point to things that might be helping it to change but i don't feel like i have enough of those to actually explain it yeah some of it is us getting richer and so adapting to that yeah uh and having more to lose and being more insulated from disaster that's i don't think that's all of it though right and and just i i i want you to talk more on that but um I think it was in Scott's review of zero to one. And I I get the sense like in a world like this where nails are beating down. um, If you can keep it to yourself and be in some sense and not get beaten down, 
being weird is almost an inexhaustible. Like it's a really good thing. Yes. Like, like because of, you, like you, there all are all these asymmetric profit opportunities. Yeah, there are. And you know, if you're neurologically or psychologically weird, a lot of the times, um, the kind of things aren't as much work for you. There are more work for other people. Our things are more work for you than they are for other people but you can exploit the ones you're good at and you can delegate the ones you're not good at yeah um so to some extent i think of it as letting you i think of the market like a race kind of um like uh i'm visualizing a race from above so it's an unusually simple race and the market lets you come at from a slant right and Having odd goals will do that, too. I right. mean, a lot of the time, if what you want is something that not a lot of our people want. Yeah. So both having a different tool set and having goals that people, that you're not directly competing with people for. Right. Well, and that, but in some, yeah, yes, exactly. I, I think it's really important. Like, the goals that you're not directly competing for with other people, like, the more you can get away from that, from competing. But it seems like it's almost... In some sense, it, it's gotten easier to make real progress because, you know, if you're competing with a sad researcher to create an actual cure for or, you know, real viable treatment for severe seasonal affective yeah. disorder, you've got this immense advantage because they're not really like the sad researchers are not actually competing with you on creating a treatment for sad. Yes. Which is very weird. Yes. Like really like like I my mind like I think about this like this is just so bizarre and almost like I think you and I should try and get a, a sad researcher on the, yeah. the podcast because I, I want to understand like you know like what's the explicit story what's yeah. that you tell yourself about this I don't know might have more luck with an ex-sad researcher ex-sad researcher there you go <laughs> banished from the academy yeah or just having less of an incentive to play politics that's true that's the problem um Scott Alexander has an essay where he mentions that in 2014, if you and your friends were being the experts, that was awesome. And I mean, you'd done something good. And in 2021, if you and your friends are being the experts, well, it's just getting kind of sad now. Yeah. So I think he was talking about COVID specifically, but um, right. it generalizes. And. So I guess that's me returning to what I said before, that it's changing. It's Some parts of it are getting worse, and I don't totally understand why. Yeah. It's, ah, oh man. In some sense, is expert over, like, is expert, is expertise... Like, are experts, like, uh, somewhat overrated at this point, then? Is this... Yeah. In in fields that are... That have been around for a while. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that something fair we could... Yeah, I think so. I think human psychology would be enough to make it likely that they would be overrated, even outside of the... Because humans right. have tribal chieftains, but science is relatively new. And so it seems counterintuitive to people that you would trust the physics experts about physics and not about things that aren't physics. Right. Um, but I think further overrated because of what we're talking about. 
Right. There could be really weird incentives. Yeah. Like really weird incentives. Um, one other example. Uh, do you remember the the infant formula example? Yes. Yeah. Parenteral nutrition. Yes. Can you talk about that at all? I can't remember the exact details. Ah, well, I'm not sure that I have the exact details either. I do have it on my iPad. Nice. But um, as I recall, it's another example of what we're talking about. It's a um, treatment for babies who are born with malformed di- digestive tracts. Short bowel syndrome, I believe. Yes. And so... They need uh, parenteral nutrition. Uh, they need sort of special nutrition. And we are using the wrong fats in the nutrition. In the United States. And, yes. And this causes them to get brain damaged and sick and sometimes die. And we have excellent reason to think that we're using the wrong fats. Uh, it was approved by the FDA when we didn't have a good breakdown of different fats and we kind of have fats are fats attitude. right and the uh the the stuff we we use we currently use and have been using it's a uh, soybean oil tends yes. to be and that's what's approved as soybean oil yes um and it has something to do with omega-6 to omega-3 like that yeah. that breakdown um and if it's wrong <laughs> you get all these terrible developmental um problems down the yes. road so, yes, I found it. Uh, nice. Basically, what we've been talking about. Uh, so, in 2012, there was a single hospital in the United States that could provide correctly formulated parenteral nutrition the Boston Children's Hospital. The formulation was illegal to sell across state lines. (laughs) So it looks like this one is on the FDA, uh, which was the one who had, they had approved, I'm parsing because it goes on for quite a bit. I'm trying to pick out which. A doctor who gives a baby a nutrition formula that isn't FDA approved will lose their job. A hospital that doesn't fire that kind of doctor will be sued. A scientist that writes proposals for a big, expensive, definitive study won't get a grant. And while they were busy writing those failed grant proposals, they'll have lost their momentum toward tenure. So we have, you know, almost like dominoes, but in reverse. Right blocked um i think the example is he's using it mostly to demonstrate that uh this continues to be a concern even when the stakes are life and death and the people being killed aren't anybody's out group nobody wants to kill babies right no one explicitly wants this to happen yes and yet 
and yeah. Well, and, and it's because you know that a, you know, if you get formula that's not approved, and you're a physician, something happens. Yes. Get fired, lose your job. You know, you've got to drive Uber. Yes. And it's a big status downgrade. Yes. For a physician, and. It, and and it keeps going up the chain, right? The FDA, you know, for yes. whatever reason, they you know they've got these weird incentives, can't do it, you know. Yes. And then like the manufacturers, they don't really have enough incentive to like go out and do the study, and then you know cost God knows how much to get it through the FDA, and it's just like all the circular crazy incentives ends ends up with us, you know, killing. Yeah. Infants. Yeah. All the way up the chain. And the FDA, I think asymmetric justice is at least part of that. FDA people have an incentive not to approve potentially dangerous medications. Right. Um, and I think they also have an incentive not to acknowledge that they've made a mistake when it's something like this, even if the evidence is otherwise mounting. Right. Um, partly, I was reading... Uh, well, I was listening a uh, podcast I used to listen to to read through of the Gulag Archipelago. So yeah. I haven't actually read, but there's this um, scene in it that they read aloud that uh, struck, stuck with me. It's the uh, applause scene. Oh, yeah? Where um, they have a moment of applause for Comrade Stalin. And it goes on and on and on because you don't want to be the first person to stop, stop clapping. clapping. Uh, similarly, I think the FDA, uh, I forget exactly. Yes. Oh, right. You don't want to acknowledge that you've made a mistake. Right. The first person to acknowledge the mistake is going to get scapegoated. So even if right. evidence is mounting from outside, they're not going to get rewarded for acknowledging right. it. Yeah. And this actually, this reminds me, there's this great political science paper I read you know, it was probably a year ago, and so I can't remember the, quite all the details. But it talks about politicians apologizing. Yeah. And, like, it categorically just, like, does not work. Yes. Like, apologizing does not work. Like it, may, yeah. And so your incentive is actually just to, like, to not deny, 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 yes. deny. You just keep denying. So, like, you know, like, like you said, like, the FDA said, God dang, like, dude, we screwed up. Can't do this anymore. Yeah. You know, we need to fix it. Um, you know, it's the front page of the New York Times, and they're like, we got to fire these people. And then, and, and you know, the hospital's like, God, you know, God, we're screwing up. This is bad. Um, there's a great um, documentary. It's on, um, there's a fire in Romania. And um, it, it was at a nightclub. A lot of people died. And then, the uh, state health service kept all the uh, patients in a, a burn unit, but um, there's all this like crazy corruption and they weren't taken care of properly. They should have been shipped. They, they should have sent them to Germany where they had the proper facilities. But it was a matter of pride that they didn't want to do this. Like we can take care of them here. And so they, they end up firing the health minister and they get in someone who's at least in the documentary, you get the sense his explicit goal is like, like to clean up. He's trying to clean up the hospitals and like admit we're wrong. And so, you know, he's like, goes up there, he's like, we're terrible. You know, the state hospitals, they don't work right. You know, there's like all this corruption. They're skimming money off the top. The uh, the the cleaning agents they were using, 
They were diluting them um, to a point where they couldn't prevent MRSA. Hmm. Like they couldn't clean the surfaces enough. Um, and he was like trying to like go in and clean this up and he's just like unable to do it. I'm not exactly sure where I was going with that. Uh, but it, uh, it's a great film. I have to include in the show notes. Uh, it just to see like what happens if an actor who understands all these things tries to go in and yes. fix it. And he's just like completely unable. Like he's a patient rights advocate. He understands like these are all the issues. And he's like, well, what if we go in and we just, Oh yeah. So they're using this cleaner. The cleaner's not working. Uh, because it's like the alcohol level is way too low to actually like destroy any bacteria. So he says, well, can we just like go in and remove it from all the hospitals? And his advisor goes, no, I'm sorry. That's illegal. Yeah. You know, like we'll get in trouble with the courts. So he's like, well, can we take, can we get a court order? It's like, no, we can't really do that. So we just got to keep it. And it's like, man, at some level you think if you're that guy, don't you just like walk down the hospital and, and like get your staff and say, we're throwing all this out. We're yeah. going to go pull it out. Like I'm going to walk down there myself if I have to. And I, I guess the incentives are you just can't get hired again if you ever do that. Yeah. Is, is that is that what's going on? It's because like, you know, like there was points where Fauci, you know, he could have done like, I'm sure there was somewhere things like this, you know, that there's, there's small things we could do that would really help. But if I go against it and I actually make it happen, you know, I just get fired and I can't get hired again. Yes. And you're optimizing for staying in job and doing the, you're still trying to, you know, you want to do as best you can, but you're optimizing to, towards like keeping your job. Yep. And uh, the jobs are populated by people who've made that decision. You know, if you lose you your job, you get to make that decision the one time. You only get to do it once. Yeah. And you get replaced by someone who will make many, many decisions. Right. Um, so there's a almost evolutionary dynamic in play where uh, making the what we think of as the right decision means right. you get selected out and you only get to make that one decision. You know, like, and like, and, and so I'm sure the calculus you make in your mind is like, well, maybe I can make changes on the margin, you know, like, and I know this is the wrong decision, but like maybe going forward I can make better decisions than the next person up. And also, well, of course, what's really front of mind is like I want to keep my career going. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, that's something you could think. And if it's my model of humanity, there would be people thinking it. I read Zvi, and his model of the people who end up in charge is that their mentality is really strongly adapted to what you need to do to be in charge. And so they're unlikely to be trying to do the right thing. They're unlikely gotcha. to be devoting mental energy to that. So, so, okay, that, that makes sense. So if, if it is a very competitive environment, yeah, you don't have time to even think about doing the right thing. Like this is like completely secondary to, yeah. you have to just, the, it's competitive, you know, uh, it, it's like the, um, yeah, yeah. Like it, it, it gets competed out completely if it's yeah. competitive enough. Um, John Nurse, who we talked to, yeah. he pointed out, um, he has an essay where he speculates that a lot of the uh, Asperger's stuff is one side of a bell curve, and the other side are people who are really skewed toward being social. Um, I would like a word with fewer bad connotations than manipulative, but they're oh, aimed toward dealing with other people. And we don't have a label for those people because if you're very, very good at dealing with other people, you're running the culture in the first place. Right. Um, I feel like 
the people who are highly placed in the current system, in at least the most you know competitive positions, are likely to be way at the edge of the bell curve. And I think that not just out that bell curve, but in general, they're likely to be very extreme. And so I'm not sure um, that it works. I'm not sure this is productive to say, but I'm not sure it works to model them like they're trying in good faith because it's simultaneously true that... 90% uh, of humanity is trying in good faith. Right. And, you know, and our 5% is just not trying, so they're not doing in bad faith. Yeah. And at the same time, these people are unusually likely to be derived from the remaining 5%. Right. Um, it's complicated because it's not, I don't think they're just, you know, psychopaths or whatever. But we yeah. could do a simplified model where uh, making decisions just for power makes you more likely to end up in control. Right. and make 1% of the population psychopaths. Right. And you're going to see those people almost, you're going to see leadership positions being uh, controlled almost exclusively by that 1%. Right. Well, and we can even think about this in terms of like uh, competitive uh, sprinting. Yeah. Uh, so th this has this been big in the news recently with... Uh, oh. Drug testing stuff, but anyway, so you know they, we've got Olympic trials going on right now. Yeah, um, and you know if you're an Olympian, you need the genetic talent predisposition. Yeah, you got to have the fast switch muscle fibers. You have to have you know your pelvis has to be built a certain way. Yes. You know, like all this genetic stuff, and then you have to spend every waking hour, essentially every waking hour. Yes, you know, optimizing on this one thing, like yes, you know, and because it's so competitive. You know, you have to like train right. You have to eat right. You've got to, you know, have a good plan. You got to be smart about it. You've got to, you know, and you've got to spend a lot of time doing yes. that. And so at the end, like, because it's so competitive, the more competitive it is, the less time you have for, there's no slack. There yep. is just no slack to do anything else. Yeah, very much like that. Or like, um, suppose we were thinking about, we were talking about Fields male winners, and yeah. I was saying it's neat that they persevere through all that boring math. Right. Because, you know, most people find math kind of boring. Some yeah. people don't find it. But my guess is that very, very few Fields male people find math even a little bit boring. <laughs> and politicians, for instance, are, you know, national level politicians and people who end up running the CDC and yeah. are similarly really heavily selected. And it's harder to say what, because I don't think they're just psychopaths, but I think they might, I believe they have a mentality that is entirely geared toward winning zero sum status games, uh, on, in the symbolic social realm. Yeah. So, you know, the head of the FDA does not know the babies are dying. You can't tell them the babies are dying. They'll process that as a social signal or some yeah. part of a coalitional power game. Yeah. And it sounds like I'm dehumanizing them. Um, but I'm not doing that gratuitously. I think, uh, I think that if we expect that they are trying their best, that we will be badly wrong again and again and again, and we'll make bad predictions. Right. Um, and I think that's consistent with a world where almost everyone is trying their best. Right. And it's not the case, and 
maybe you are saying this, but I don't think you're saying this. It's not the case that they're even like in some moral sense trying to do be a bad person. No. They're literally just optimizing. Like they 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 want to win. Yes. They they really want to win, and they're optimizing on whatever it takes to win. Yes. Um. Whatever game they they've selected there. I'm thinking I don't have direct evidence for this. Um, I play video games. And there's a funny thing where when you start a video game, you're thinking about how to play it. And then it sort of fades into the background. You know what the jump button is. Right. And then you can get to a level where you couldn't tell someone what the jump button was, but your hand just does it. Right. And I think um, that a lot of people who have risen to the top of moral mazes are similarly, uh, their brains are doing... They're just executing the right social move. Right. Um, instinctively, reflexively. Um, in sort of the same way. And I don't know how to communicate that. Um, the way your brain can run almost a different program, a different right. game, in a totally compartmentalized way. Um, I don't have a non-video game example, and not everyone plays video games. Right. Driving, maybe? Yeah, driving. Huh. Uh, I think there's something like that going on. Right. I think there would almost have to be. Right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it does speak just so many levels. Advice I draw from this. Yeah. Like life advice is you should always be really concerned about hyper competitive environments. Yes. And you should always, as best you can, and this scares me to death. Like I literally like, which I think is good. Cause I think if you're scared about things, you know, there's a chance you can ameliorate, ameliorate them and like, you know, work on them. But like, you know, doing something that like, you got to make sure you're optimizing on the right axis. Yes. Like, and you, you need to think about this a lot. Like, yeah. and yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like it's, I mean, it's really quite scary, right? I mean, like, no one's setting out to make this... No one's setting out to have the infants die. You know what I mean? And then yet we here we end up. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's quite horrifying, right? Yeah, it is. It's... I think Mashuit says that if you were picking something to keep you up at night, this would be a good candidate. I agree with that. And Um, and it, it is much scarier than explicitly bad people or yes. something like villains like movie villains because you know at least this is in some sense like well you can get rid of the person and then yes. you know, that's a much more solvable problem than you know like our mentalities human mentalities are so well adapted to dealing with villains that we read stories about them for fun i mean right we really want to do that the same way we want to eat lots of sugar and right. fat and just like eating lots of sugar and <laughs> fat you know sometimes it's the right thing to do right if you never ate any sugar or fat i think uh, that yeah. would not be good for you but this is scarier because it's something we're not adapted to doing we're right. trying to do it manually right backing up a little bit yeah you remember the post-conflict uh, versus mistake theory? Yes. So we've been talking a lot about, I'll t- try to summarize this as quickly as I can. Mistake theory is kind of what we've been talking about. You know, everyone's like trying to optimize on something. They're not explicitly trying to do something bad, um, but they end up doing something bad. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
conflict is like, well, sometimes people actually do things uh, you know, yes. <laughs> to try and win like a conflict and they're, and they're actually trying to do something bad. Um, is it, do you think it's a bias that we have, you know, we're high systematizers, you know, like I, I, I would definitely be biased towards mistakes theory. Yeah. Um, do, do you think we're biased towards mistake theory too much and that conflict, you know, we should think more about conflict theory or is that like, you think we have it properly weighted? Scott's essay ties together a bunch of different qualities. Yeah. And he shows how they correlate. Each of them is explained as a cause of the previous quality. Right. But they don't, they're not logically identical. And once you have something that correlates with something, but so I think of them as a cluster. Okay. Uh, rather Got it. than a single thing. And I think some aspects of that cluster we're doing the right amount of. Right. Um, you know, for all I know, some of them we're not doing enough of, and some we probably are doing too much of. Right. Um, his basic one sense definition is conflict theorists see this, see the problems of society as primarily being about conflicts, evil people doing things. Who right. We have to, and mistake theorists think people are making mistakes, um, and some. When he draws out the correlations, uh, you have conflicts theorists to a large extent eschewing discourse yeah. and eschewing truth-seeking and eschewing right. uh, Voltaire-style liberalism and debate. Right. And I think that part is definitely a mistake. Yeah. But I think trying to understand clearly both the existence of conflict theorists and the existence of people who have... Uh, Goals, bad goals, goals that are not consistent with our goals anyway. Right. Uh, it's important not to be blind to that. Yeah. Um, I think there's a party game called Werewolf or Mafia. Yeah. And I've never played it, but I've read essays about it. Yeah. Um, it's played with a group of people. Uh, some of whom are secretly uh, werewolves, yeah, and uh, most of whom are villagers, and the villagers have to try to detect the werewolves. Yeah, I'm wishing I'd played it; I'd have a better idea of how it works. The remarkable thing about it is how well it aligns a set of um, incentives. If you're a villager, you want clarity. Yeah, you are in conflict with the werewolves, but the um optimal strategy for you looks remarkably like the sort of liberalism that Voltaire or Bertrand Russell brought to mind. Right. You want clarity. You want coordination. You want communication. And if you're a werewolf, you want discord and confusion. And you want to gum up the works of coordinating as well as you can without uh, tipping your hand that that's what you're trying to do. And the reason it's bad to tip your hand that that's what you're trying to do is that it identifies you as a werewolf, and that makes you a target for coordination, and you would end up incentivizing the coordination. Got it. So I see that framework as sort of, I add it to Scott's conflict mistake theory. And I'm okay for my personal, um, in the service of my own goals, for my own ethics. I'm okay being a conflict theorist, but I don't act as a werewolf ever. Right. I really like uh, that. I do think, I think very few people are trying to do the wrong thing terminally. 
I think some of them are trying to do the wrong thing because it's the wrong thing instrumentally. Uh, this is Nerzvi Mashowitz thing, that um, doing the right thing creates ambiguity about why you did it. You might have done it because it was the right thing. And so <laughs> if you're trying to signal, say, loyalty to the group, right, you need to take actions that are the wrong thing. Right. I also think a lot of people are applying high-level heuristics rather than reasoning about the physical world. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and just mentioning, so like uh, doing the wrong thing just to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Example of that, and I should get a example for the left too because this will sound like I'm picking on somebody. Um, but, you know, like, uh, so anti-masking. Yeah. You know, like masking, it's a low-cost intervention. Yes. You know, even though the data, like, I, you know, it's not super clear. It's common sense. But, yes. you know, like it, would, it reduces some viral load because, yes. uh, you know, you've got some physical barrier. Um, like I said, low cost, easy to implement, you know, probably helps. And so it would be rational for people to do it. Right. Yep. Um, but you know, not wearing a mask is signaling an affiliation with the end group Yeah. that is not costless. And it's like probably not the right thing to, you know, it's not the right thing to do. Yes. Um, and so you see that a lot. I think so. I don't know. I think that's one thing driving that. Yeah. At, at least part of it. Um, and we've actually talked about some other reasons recently, yeah. Uh, but perhaps less related. I want to I want to talk about one more thing, yeah. Um, before I let you go, uh, so when we think of like these kind of like collective action problems, like where you know, like the incentives are just not strong enough, like so the uh, the baby formula, a cure for sad. Um, Perhaps the baby formula example is better for what I'm what I'm trying to get at here, um, and I haven't thought about this too much, so we'll see where this goes. But what do you think can be done? So, like, you know, like example of the baby formula is it just does it taste someone who's like relatively rational and has a lot of money and can just like put in place, you know, and like make this their one issue and then go solve it? Is that what it takes? Um, like, like how would you go about even fixing a problem like this? Do you see what I'm saying? I don't know. It's an important question. Yeah. Um, like, like, so for example, we had, uh, Alexi Guzzi on the podcast. Yeah. Recently I talked to him and he's starting an organization. It's called new science. It's a nonprofit. Just check it out. Um, and his idea is to create kind of a new, uh, kind of an exit exit institution for science so there's like a institution with different incentives than uh scientists currently have you know could it be something like you make finding a cure for sad actually what you're optimizing for yes so like maybe you like put up just like a straight up bounty and you say like if we gave you we're fifty thousand dollars for a cure for you know sad right i bet that'll help would that yeah would that help i don't know yeah, I think that would help. Um, gonna get expensive fast. But would get very expensive fast. That's a real problem. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's kind of a cop out, but there's what we're doing now. I mean, there are lots of people involved in the system who are taking actions that are net bad. And the more clarity we have about that, um, 
well, ideally we would stop with the asymmetric justice or cut it down. So right. we reward people for doing good things and we, uh, punish them less. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, Instrumentally, um, for political change, you probably need the populace to have some idea. And for the populace to have some idea, you need some degree of clarity that, say, the FDA knew this thing was killing people and let it happen. And I find that a little bit distasteful because I'm adding more blame to a system that's already really, really full of blame. Yeah. But it might help at least a little bit. Interesting. Um. I do. Th- I think a lot of this um, does rely on some degree of ambiguity, but I also don't know how to. Um, the public isn't my weapon of choice, and I don't really know how I talk to them. Right. Uh, I have a very strong instinct that creating clarity is good, that has both uh, locally beneficial effects and that the unforeseen effects skew positive. Interesting. So is it something like making explicit, like more explicit, like talking about like what people are actually optimizing on in the given time? Yeah. What they're optimizing on, uh, what we can conclude, what we have good evidence for. Yeah. I really wish I had something better than that. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult, and I, and I put you on the spot there, but yeah. I, I do think it is also an argument for, you know, like things happening on the edges. Like yeah. it's probably easier. It's probably easier. Yeah, there is, you know, there's also creating a whisper network. Like people who have problems with seasonal affective disorder can read about Yudkowsky's stuff even if they can't get it through the mainstream medical system. Right. Um, And, you know, to some extent you could theoretically have a long-term, you could have an increasingly developed informal communication set of communication until it supplants the formal set. Uh, I think something like that either has happened or is in the process of happening with Wikipedia. Got it. I mean, it started as, you know, nobody took it seriously. Right. And now I think most people take it seriously. I don't know if they're, I'm not saying they're necessarily right to do so. Right. But. It definitely, yeah, it it definitely is getting more, yeah, like, you know, it's, it's common, it's like. You know, especially like pages with a lot of, well, again, like pages with a lot of people editing it and like working on it, like you can get pretty close. Yeah. Like you have the knockdown drag out fight about like, you know, any given topic. So I guess that's another strategic avenue. Create the bare incentives uh, informally and position them to take over formally once it becomes obvious enough to enough people and that part I don't know how I do, uh, that they're working better than the institutional incentives. Right. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Any other concluding remarks? I know we've talked about a ton today. No, I can't think of anything. Cool. So I'll, uh, 
I'll put the a link to the book, Inadequate Equilibria. Yeah. Quite recommended. It's not a long read either. It's nope. good. It's a good book. There's also a good book review if you, even that's too long. I'll put a link yeah. to that too. Scott did. Scott did a good book review he on did. that, I think. Um, and, and we didn't even get through all the stuff about the outside view. Well, I guess a roundabout way we've kind of talked about it. But yeah. Perhaps a topic for another day. Yeah. Well, thanks, Quinn, for coming on. Really Thank you for it. having me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.